Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the BIM Academy Digital Climate Podcast. I'm Graham Kelly, Managing Director at BIM Academy, and I will be the podcast host for this series. During this series, my guests and I will be exploring the theme, Don't Fear the Future. Stakes might sometimes be high, but so are the rewards. We will focus on future thinking and looking ahead to opportunities and solutions that will support the fight against climate change. It's only by pushing our own boundaries that change is possible, and it is only by embracing change that we can generate new ideas that will have a positive impact on the future of our built environment. Hi guys, I'd like to introduce my guest today, Barry O'Reilly, business advisor, entrepreneur, author of Earn, Learn and Lean Enterprises and founder of Nobody Studios, a studio trying to launch uh, 100 companies over the next few years. Welcome, Barry. It'd be great if you could start off by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what drives you. Yeah, I think like one of the things that's always interested me is doing things that have never really been done before. You know, a thing that attracted me early in my career is I had the chance when I was in university to go and work in San Francisco just at the beginning of the dot-com boom. And um, I was really lucky. I was working for a company called CitySearch.com and they were sort of the equivalent of trying to put the yellow pages on the internet so people would pay us like 50 bucks a month and they could go get a website and a URL and an address. And we would go around to like Graham's Cafe and take photos of your, you know, your little cafe and put the menu up there and people could find you on the internet. Um, now, our, our number one competitor was Zip2. Do you know, are familiar with Zip2? I haven't heard of Zip2, business. no. And it was Elon Musk's first company. Oh, nice. And, um, yeah, so we were going to merge with them at one point, but uh, in the end, we didn't. And, uh, you know, I often joke, I don't know what happened to Elon, but I'm here on your podcast today. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's always the highlight. But, um, yeah, no, we've been, that business was just a great experience for me to learn about technology innovation, you know, the impact it was starting to have. And um, it just got me very excited about the possibilities there. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to, follow that path a little bit uh, throughout my career, just looking for things that are new or novel um, and haven't been done before and trying to do them. And, and as you said, with Nobody Studios, we're a venture studio. We're trying to build 100 companies in five years at a, a pretty crazy velocity and scale. So that, again, excited me to that mission. And yeah, I'll certainly share a bunch more of um, magic moments and disasters along the way. I'm sure that that will hopefully help some of your listeners. Amazing, amazing. We did try to get Elon, but you know, yeah, maybe he's next busy. time. He's a busy guy. One of the things that guys might know you from is um, your book Unlearn, which I think is a fantastic ride through the sort of ideas around you know all the behaviours that we've picked up over the years, especially in in terms of business and and how actually that might be the one that's holding us back. And I just wondered whether you could talk talk us through that system and that and that approach, and and then I think we'll try and twist that into what that might mean for the construction industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, part of what I've done over the years is I've been lucky enough to be entrepreneur and build businesses, but I've also done a lot of advising for Fortune 500s from companies like American Airlines and Wells Fargo to like startups like Spotify and Slack. And, you know, one of the things that constantly struck me working with these like phenomenally gifted people was often when they were trying to change their businesses, it, it, it wasn't the ability uh, for them to learn new things that was the issue. And um, the challenge was them letting go of a lot of the behaviors or thinking that had made them successful to that point. You know, and, you know, we hear a lot about learning uh, in, in the world, right? Learning organizations, it's, 
you know, you can go to Harvard and go get yourself a learning organization, MBA or degree or something like this. But one of the things that struck me is we didn't really talk a lot about unlearning. And it's kind of quite a provocative word as well. Like many times I've walked into executive offices and said, right, I'm going to teach you all how to unlearn. And most of their time, they're like, who's this joker telling us what does he know about running finance or business operations or whatever, you know, but um, the, the, the thing about unlearning, um, it, I'm not saying what people know is, is wrong. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. As, as you alluded to, it's a system. Or as I think of it is, it's a process of letting go or reframing uh, once useful mindsets and behaviors that were effective in the past, but now limiting our success. So it's not forgetting, removing, or discarding your knowledge or experience. It's just a simple act of letting go of outdated information and making space for new information to come in to inform your decision-making and action. You know, and and probably one way, and this happens everywhere in, in our life, right? The lessons we learn as a kid are often simple old versions of what the reality of the world is like. You know, so as you as you grow older, you're able to deal with more complex situations and stories that helped you understand the world in the beginning are actually turn out to be untrue, as an example, or just like a product. Um that has sort of features and it has to, you know, to stay relevant in its market, you've got to constantly innovate the features of, of, of products, you know, and, and humans have behavior. So if you're not constantly innovating your behavior to meet the market that you're in, again, that's where it can lead to disruption. So, so all of these ideas are really what on learning is about. And as you said, it built a system to guide people through that about where they can identify and diagnose where they may need to unlearn steps that they may need to take to relearn uh, to ultimately get breakthroughs that they're looking for in before performance ultimately and and uh and um effectiveness and, and what that's brilliant thank you and what, and what are those sort of i wondered if you had a few examples of that kind of that mindset or that that's maybe a little bit outdated and 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 how you went about you know and learning that shifting that with some of the companies that you've worked with yeah, like one of my sort of favorite examples, and I talk about it in the book, is like working with uh, an executive from probably one of the top five banks in the US. And I remember when she got assigned um, the role, um, she came from the healthcare industry and she was going into financial services. And I remember like sitting with her even when she was sort of in her first week and she was sort of overwhelmed by the amount of people that came to her to make decisions. And it was like every type of decision from, you know, should the company open in a new market? Um, should we be using um, a certain payment gateway supplier or another? What pens should we order for the office? Like she was literally sitting there going like there's a, a decision making or sort of learned helplessness that sort of has happened in this company where her is the most senior executive in this like multi-billion dollar business deciding what pens the company should order was just sort of ridiculous, right? So so she was able to sort of diagnose, if you will, um, that the company and the team needed to unlearn decision-making, right? And um, it was, it's really, that's sort of part of the, the questions I often ask people, like, how do you diagnose these things? And I, I sort of frame it to folks to say, can you see, you know, areas you're not living up to your expectations, you're not achieving the outcomes you want, situations you're trying things but they're not working or your secret sauce suddenly stops murking so for her this this thing that was really in her face was this sort of 
outcome that nobody was making decisions, right? That they were landing on her to make. So that was a great way for her to diagnose that. And and then we sort of talked a bit about, well, if these if the obstacle is this sort of decision making, learned helplessness, what's the actual outcome that you want? You know, what what's the success that you want to see? And I get her to tell stories about it. So I'd sort of said to her, you know, in like 18 months time or two years time, what what would be going on in in the company if if we had sort of unlearned this uh, lack of decision making? And instantly she'd be saying things like, oh, you know, the teams would be bringing me um, information that I might need to make decisions that was more pertinent. They'd be offering options. You know, most of her time would be spent on what success is and why it matters, n- never how to do it. Um, you know, so so all of this learned helplessness would have disappeared. So very quickly, we could sort of describe these, if you will, outcomes. And it was just just a matter of picking one of these examples then and saying, right, like that best exemplifies the the company or the team on learning, you know? Mm. And she 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 sort of picked this um the one she picked was that her her a hundred percent of the time she was only going to say, you know, what success was and why it mattered, but and zero percent she would say how to do it. Right. And this is sort of like the unlearning statement that she sort of made to herself and even to her team. Right. So so then you start thinking, right, well, you've you've sort of defined what success is and you've actually codified it, if you will, in an objective statement saying, you know, we'll unlearn decision making when 100 percent of the time my direction is what success is and why it matters. And zero percent of the time it's how to get there. So she's actually sort of written like a a measurable um, observation of her behavior in trying to solve this. So then you just have to think about relearning, like what are some of the small steps you know, and I and it was really fun with her. So I was like, right, well, if if let's pick one of these zero percent of the time, you're going to tell people how to do something. Now you can imagine as a senior executive, you know, the 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 the, the reflex, if you will, to to when people ask you a question to say, oh, this is how you do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's you're laughing too as well, right? It's built into people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so so I would sort of say to her, like, right, so you're you're not gonna tell people how to do things. You're gonna you're gonna have to ask them what do they think or what do they should they do? Right. So you had to shift this reflex from say, giving the answer to asking a question. Right. And I could even see a bit of the anxiety building up in her, right? Because that was gonna be uncomfortable. Um, and it's not an automatic reaction. You know, so she was like, I can't tell my team I'm never going to make a decision again. Like they'll they'll think, you know, they'll fire me because they're like, what am I doing here? And I was like, OK, well, rather than, you know, it might it might be a big, uncomfortable moment, but we can make it a small step. You know, so let's just say for for one day, anyone who comes into that door and asks you to make a decision on something, you're just going to say to them, um, I'm not sure. What do you think? Right. And, and that's, that's, that's the, that's the small behavior change that we're going to go for. Now, while it might sound insignificant, the magic of that is something really special happens. So when the first person came through the door and she, and, you know, was like, I, you know, we've got to decide what geography we're going to open in. And she's like, I don't know. What do you think? If that person sort of froze and was like, Oh, um, I don't know. I was, I needed you to make the decision. It, instantly, she's like, okay, that's a person that needs help, coaching, mentoring, about to make decisions. The next person who comes in and says, you know, I think we should go with 
this payment provider over another. And she's like, well, what do you think? And they're suddenly like, oh, well, I think we should go with option A because here's the pros and cons. And option B is interesting, but there's the pros and cons. And right, you can, the, the critical thinking of some people comes to the surface, right? Where she's like, right, that person knows how to make decisions. So I, I can give them more, more leniency and I can push them to make more decisions and just show me the rationale behind them. Right. And that's sort of where you start to get these breakthroughs is these tiny um, shifts in behavior allow for new information to come towards you that you can do something with. Right. So in, in her example, she could identify folks that were sort of stuck and needed to be coached about saying, right, well, you need to start showing me your critical thinking on this and make a choice versus the people who did that naturally and wanted to make decisions or could make decisions really, but they might've had a barrier to say, oh, well, my last boss didn't let me, right? Yeah. And and that's sort of like just how you get these breakthroughs. And, you know, again, as you start to apply these in very micro examples, just like decision-making, which, which has a huge effect on company uh, performance and culture, you know, then you can start to see how you can scale this system to like any problems that you're facing and getting people to sort of apply it. Amazing. And and that learned helplessness, I love that sort of that terminology. Is that do you think that comes a lot from um you, you know, companies that have a, a very top down approach in, in terms of what they're doing, it's very sort of command and control type approach to, to their to their workflow? Is that is that what you found when sort of studying for the book? Yeah, like I, I think most people, you know, like we, I feel like we're all sort of anthropologists of company culture, right? From the experiences we've had, right? You know, I'm sure you can think of examples, but, mm. but, but it is a conditioning, right? Like when you're in an environment, there's certain behaviors that almost um, are reflexes or you're, you become conditioned to. So maybe it is that boss who wants to make all the decisions and won't let other, other people make it. Maybe you're in the opposite end of that where people are, afraid to make a decision because they're if what if they get it wrong the anxiety or around that and and in both instances you know i find it's just it's not like people are really trying to be so um you know narcissistic or evil it's just that they're not getting the things they need to give them confidence to either let go if it's top down decision making mm. or confidence to make a decision and maybe be wrong and not feel like they're going to be punished right there's there's a there's a sort of invisible wall in front of these people somehow. And that's why doing small things that demonstrate or test that the assumptions about what you're feared about are so important, you know? And I can even think of a good example, right? In in um, recent memory, one of the startups we were working with, right? And, and they had this, you could see the anxiety about, they had to make a decision about um, what their long-term business strategy, a roadmap to get there and how they would start. And it's a hard conversation to have because there's three sort of levels to that conversation, right? Like long-term, where's the business trying to go? What are the options then if we choose one of those long-term visions? And then what do we do today? And, you know, what, and, and trying to engage even uh, like our studio executive team, they were nervous about it because they felt like they had to have know all the answers. And even some of the executive team in the studio were frustrated because they didn't see the team you know, making it like plotting a path about where they're trying to go, right? So both sides were looking at the same information and frustrated at one another. Yeah, yeah. but one of the most powerful things that happened in that team is 
they literally just wrote down the options, right? They literally said, for our, our long-term vision, we could build a platform, we could integrate with another platform, or we could do, you know, a standalone business. And I went, and and then they talked about the trade-offs of all of those, right? And said, our our, our opinion was we should integrate with this other product, and here's why. <clears throat> then they could, once they'd made that sort of decision, they could sort of go, right, the way we're going to do that integration is here's the force, the two options to do that. We start it now, we start it later. Here's the pros and cons. We're going to choose this one. And I swear, like that meeting, it just, it just was one of the easiest meetings I think I've been in in a long time about making a tough decision because they showed their work. They showed the rationale. They laid it out in front of people so everyone could just follow along. And it, it, it was almost obvious what the answers were because people could see the trade-offs. They could see the options and go, oh yeah, it's option one here. Oh yeah, it's definitely option two. Oh, it's definitely option five there. And everyone was like, sweet, you know, but there was mm. so much anxiety building up because people were getting, were struggling at times about, you know, what was the decision to be be made? What, what you know, and what plane or level were people talking at about the long-term vision, like what they're going to do today? Like what are the options to get there in 18 months time? And it was just creating like a washing machine of all these bits of decisions that weren't coordinated or, or and, and just writing stuff down and talking people through it was a huge breakthrough there. So, you know, there's many ways to solve those problems, I think. Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of tools like that in the book, hopefully that will help people. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I think, you know, what came to mind there for me was that sort of idea around psychological safety and within the within the workplace and, and that empowerment piece. And I, I picked up something really, really interesting that I've been using a fair bit um, recently, which is that everyone hates the word fail, like in terms of, you know, it's a really hard word, you know, a pretty product, provocative, pretty final word, you know, in terms of fail. And so uh, when I picked this up, the idea was to, to, to not ever say fail anymore, but to, unless it was, you know, needed for that moment, but more to pick up the idea of saying, look, if it doesn't work the way that we expected to, that's okay. We can evolve through that. And that, and that even by doing that, you're sort of wrapping that whole process in that psychological safety, which I thought was really, really interesting. It's similar to what you just sort of described that process as of getting everyone in the room, wrapping everyone in this sort of psychological safety bubble and just say, let's just work through it, you know? Um, so I think that was that's awesome. There's a, can I just share one point there though? Because it's yeah, so important the intent there. Like one of the things that always struck me when I was working with American Airlines and Stephen Lice is the head of customer technology there. So he he's responsible for like their mobile app, uh, AmericanAirlines.com. Like every customer facing anything a customer touches, that like that's his responsibility. You know, and they were struggling, if you will, with like delivery for a long time projects overrunning, you know, people frustrated, throwing more people at the problem and, and not getting the desired results. You know, one of the things that really struck them about how they were going to solve this problem is they had to find a business partner in the company who was sort of willing to go on almost like this exploration with them, like a joint problem-solving mission where they didn't know all the answers. Right. And it, it sort of ties into the point you were making about let's try this and see if it works or doesn't. And we'll use that information to take our next step. 
right? And and that is a very different sort of philosophy, if you will, to say like this is a we do, we're going on a joint problem solving mission. We don't know all the answers. We will make mistakes, but can we make them in a controlled manner so we don't go catastrophic? Um, and it helps us make progress, you know. And I think that is there's there's something like massively powerful about creating that agency for people just by saying it in the way you phrased. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think you know my my background is all is all in construction built environment, um, and and I think there's there's so much learning or unlearning that could be done um, within that sector. You know, I feel sometimes we're we're quite far far behind from a from a technological perspective, but maybe even from a from just a sort of forming teams, building complex projects perspective as well. And it and I really wanted to start to explore what this all means from a construction perspective. So if I if I set out the the idea that you know it's around you know quite traditional processes, you know construction projects are, are tend to be newly forming teams, even when you know teams know each other and worked together before. You know it might be different people within different organizations. There's a huge amount of craft still within the within the construction industry in terms of actually building a product or designing a product and and um, or an asset, I guess, uh, in this sense. Um, and I don't know whether, for me, I don't think that the that is explored enough with regards to you know it's it seems to me like it's still very much a command and control type environment you know um, main contractors or or um, contract manager type approach where you are um, effectively telling people what to do and you know you you're planning it to the nth degree before building it and then you're building it and then almost dealing with problems when they arise, but it, it's, it, there's that sort of inflexibility when you're sort of dealing with those problems because yeah. it hasn't been thought about. It hasn't been designed. It hasn't been, and and I know you, you've, you know, you've done a bit of work with, with the built environment sector, but you know, it's, I wonder if you thought there was parallels to, you know, areas that you, you're vastly experiencing around, you know, building hugely complex tech pro- yeah. problems and that kind of thing. And whether there's areas that we can, you know, areas the construction industry can learn from to be a little bit more, flexible dynamic you know um that kind of thing oh yeah, yeah just no, some examples on that would be amazing absolutely yeah like the, there are some parallels right and in my assumptions anyway strike me that are probably unique to the construction industry is the cost of change is probably extremely expensive right like the way people try to mitigate risk for the cost of change is do big upfront planning and design right let's try and solve all the problems in advance Therefore, we're mitigating the risk by spending a lot of time doing analysis and planning and thinking to de-risk the project. So really, the only risk should be in execution, right? Like, can we get the cement there on time or, or whatever whatever it might be? And, yeah, and so in software development, we had this notion that we could sort of plan all the software up front. And then it was really just a case of like handovers, right? The designers give the, the designs to the engineers, the engineers build it, you know, the testers at the end test it, and then everything's rosy. You know, we give it to the customers and it's exactly the thing that they want us, that they told us about two years ago, and it's all going to be perfect, right? Well, surprise, surprise, software did that for many years and is still doing that. And customers are not pretty happy with what's showing up because they're like, well, what I told you I wanted was a door that opened inwards and you've given me a sliding door that opens backwards. And what the hell is this thing like? Right. And so the, the notion of a, like of agility, if you will, 
was a way to try and think about how can we map out a vision of what we're trying to get to and then take this incremental step to get there, right? To test and learn, to take smaller batches of work that we can implement, uh, test and iterate faster and then get more validation points because the batch of work are smaller, right? So you can iterate. Now, again, you're the expert here in construction. So, you know, all the listeners can just slag me off later and say, this guy doesn't really understand and I, I don't attest to. But that notion of like, even as you're building, like how can you break things down into smaller deliverables that you sort of take the step and test and learn and see what works, takes the next step and learn and iterate understanding that there's always has to be a larger vision, right? So you might sit with the architect and they map out this vision of what the building might be or the construction project might be. And sure, that um, is a great vision to work towards, but it may evolve over time, right? Is there decisions that we can defer to later? Um, you know, one thing, and you might probably correct me on this, like I remember when I was going to see Freedom Tower in New York City, and it was in the middle of construction. And I noticed when they were building it, the whole base of it had not, hadn't got anything on it. And I was sort of like struck to go like, well, why are you building this building and sort of exposing the whole bottom part of it? That seems kind of irrational to me. And one of the engineers said to me, oh no, that's part of the way we're designing this because it's gonna take two, if not three years to build this tower. And our assumption is that there'll be innovation in terms of materials that will happen in that period where we'll able to be put a better base on this um, building in two to three years time than we could put on it now because there'll be innovations in the materials. And that was probably the one time where I sat there and went, wow, that's kind of agile how they're thinking about that, you know, in an industry that I probably not would have been so familiar with. But um, again, for me, that was a good example of like de delaying decisions until the last responsible moment. And mm -hmm. that would lead to greater innovation. And it, to me, it just sort of struck me as like, that's agility in, in a way. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and it's definitely not. Uh, definitely not the norm within the industry in terms of sort of waiting. And a lot of it comes down to procurement, you know, and, and I guess risk mitigation and that kind of thing. There, there's a lot of um, technology that supports that process now, you know, in, in, in the field that we're in, the idea of being able to model um, in a 3D environment um, and to, you know, deliver upfront the ability to build that building virtually before you build yeah, it. Yeah, prototype um, it. That's it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So that, so that, um, you know, that's made a huge difference where that's been possible. I think the, and that's made a few decisions early doors. Um, there's a few other things coming in, but the, the other thing that struck me around that sort of the, the agility piece was, was around not just prototyping it, but starting to look at data and information in a, in a different way. At the moment, the sort of data comes last, if you like, um, you yeah. sort of, you sort of build it virtually first, but you you don't really specify the exact products and and where they and you know they come right at the last minute as the suppliers, you know, decide what they can get the the best deal on if you like, um, within a within a tolerance of that side of things. So it's kind of like actually, can we pull even more forward, um, to to prototype even more 
which would make a make a huge difference. And I think just it would be great to get your sort of thoughts on that. Um, the the idea of testing and prototyping and and how you um, how you go about relearning that approach within within any sort of sector, I suppose. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, it goes a little bit back to the point that you mentioned earlier, which is let's give this a go and see if it performs as we expect. And we might be right and we might be wrong. Right. So the whole idea of working in small batches of work is if you can sort of decompose, if you will, like your the project that you're trying to create into slices, if you will, like we in software development, we talk about like naive and and use cases of the product that can sort of give you a sense of is this functioning um, as we expected right so like classically in software you know you might have a vision for a company you want to build right if you meet an entrepreneur and they'll tell you you know uh well i airbnb let's pick a very example that most people will be familiar with right if you met the founders of Airbnb on day one, you know, they would have been like, yeah, we're going to create this service where, you know, suppliers or people can like rent out their homes and, you know, people can hire other people's homes. And right? it would have started like with a very like specific niche and a small set of functionality. But then, you know, as the business will grow, they'd be like, oh, yeah, and then we'll offer like cleaning services that automatically come to your house and insurance services and rebooking discounts. And, the product gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and just almost too big sometimes, right? And mm. that's often what happens with ideas is that they get it's very easy for them to get really, really big and conflated and overloaded and then turn into like a three or four year build. So the actual skill um, in building right products is descaling your work and actually really getting it down to the what really matters in the first instance. So with an Airbnb, like famously, the way they started was there was a government sort of a convention happening in in Washington and, you know, all the hotels were booked so that they rented out their rooms to people that were there for the convention. Right. They sort of created this and that was their aha moment. They were like, wow, people will stay in other folks houses if if they're sort of like if, if if they're really struggling for somewhere to find and actually they actually really enjoy it because it's refreshing to, to be in something that's not just a hotel when you're on the road a lot mm-hmm. you know and, and that gave them these insights so their initial product was very very simple right like the, the, they would just offer create a space where people could offer space in their home for other people to stay there you know, and, and their biggest limiting factor was actually good quality photos of the spaces. So people felt like it was a good place to be. So they would go around and take photos of the houses for people just so from a, a, a customer experience, they would say, oh, wow, this is a, this looks like a legit place to stay. I'm going to go stay there. But very simple features to start. And, and that allowed them to do this small bit of work, but then to start gathering metrics. Like how many people were looking at these um, opportunities to stay in those houses? How many people were actually booking? How many people were rebooking? Like, could they see evidence from doing a small bit of work? Was their product operating within their expectation or not? And if it was, they'd double down. And if it wasn't, they'd iterate. 
an example of iteration was they would them starting to take photos on behalf of the host because the hosts would take terrible photos, right? That was one of the mm. biggest innovations they did to get people actually booking was just better quality photos. That's what people care about. And when they're doing bookings, right? They it, The most important piece of information is not the price. It's actually the photos you take. And mm. people mm. might laugh if they think about it when they're booking hotels even. They tend to spend more time looking at the photos of the hotel room than they do at the price of the hotel, right? So that, like this, yeah. these are like little nuances you learn when you're building things. And... Um, you know, so that's really important. So what I would be encouraging, you know, for people in the construction industry is like when you think about these projects, whether they're massive skyscrapers, building ports, you know, right down to like someone building a home is like, how how can you descale the project to be sort of like, well, what's the what's the first meaningful point of feedback on this on this project that we should get to? Is it when the foundations are laid? Is it when the, the structural design is done? Is it testing some of the materials in, in a certain environment? Can we get, can we create a small instant of that? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that, that one of the key elements that you, you said there, and certainly in the Airbnb example, and, and, and we've got this mantra within, within, our, within our company, which is taking data and information and, and making an impact or making wisdom. Um, because it, there's, you know, there's there's swathes of information on on construction projects, whether it's about materiality, whether it's about you know the build itself, whether it's about you know building regs or or whatever it might be. But there's not enough effort put into on a small scale, put into the the real what's going to make a difference here moments, and and using that data to, to really explore you know those those metrics and iterate at, at that point in time. So I think you know you're absolutely you're absolutely right in that side of things. Um, the other thing um, that I've heard you talk about before, which which I think fits nicely in, in at this moment, is this idea of, of outcome versus output. And I think I, for construction industries, the best products, uh, the best projects that I've worked on over the years have kept a hold of that outcome. What is the outcome of this, the, the desired outcome for this project? Because I think Inevitably, early stage of a project, outcomes are really, really explored really deeply from a briefing perspective. When um, when the design team are involved, there's a real desire to get the right outcome. But I think often on projects where you know um, it becomes a little bit too complex, or you know th- things start falling off and um, lagging a little bit, that kind of gets forgotten, and it, it, we drive yeah, straight yeah. towards. Yeah, 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 we yeah. drive straight towards the output. We drive straight towards, you know, getting getting boots on the ground, building stuff, you know, delivering spaces, delivering, um, you know, serviced areas, delivering whatever it might be. Um, but it's just an outcome then, an output then, rather than an outcome of yeah. of whatever yeah. it might be, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was just your thoughts on exploring that a little bit more in terms of that outcome versus output. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, I think, you know, we all struggle with this and regardless of the domains you're in, right? Because sure. it, it, I feel like there is that moment of whenever you come up with a new idea, a new initiative, like the, the things people get excited about is the impact it's going to have on folks that you're creating it for. So whether it's building spaces that people can enjoy, whether they're work, you know, spaces or home spaces, right? Like, 
that's what people get excited about, right? They don't get excited, or maybe some people get excited about what <laughs> what color the bricks are going to be and where we're going to source them from. But you know, like people think about like what's it going to be like to walk around this building? What's the space going to feel like? You know, how will how will people want to go to that area and enjoy it? You know, like that's what people get excited about, and that's the outcome you want, right? Like people are in a great workspace; they feel that they're productive. It's environmentally safe, sound, friendly, all, all these things, right? That's what people get excited by because it's the world you're trying to create and the impact of it. And that's the outcomes, right, that are so important. But as you say, then, as, as you start, when you describe those outcomes, they are a result of executing work, right? Like doing doing the tasks and, and the output that needs to be created to create that outcome, you know, and... I think when the pressure is on, and especially in these big projects, right, where there's big budgets and constraints like time it needs to be done by, the spends that you have, it's very easy to start drifting into the focus on execution and rather than the vision and the outcome you were trying to create, right? Like I see that in software projects all the time is it's almost like the entrepreneur dreams of this amazing product and how amazing it's going to be. And they want it by next week. So they stop talking about this amazing experience they're trying to create. And they talk about when's that software going to be ready? Have you finished feature one, two, three? Because I need it by Friday, right? And it becomes they can become deck marches for teams because you lose sight of, if you will, why we're doing it and what success is. We get trapped in how it's being done. Um, so I, I think it's a really important thing. Uh, and one thing we certainly always try to do in initiatives I've been involved in is always be talking about what success is and why it matters all the time. You know, every every conversation, every chance where it's a team meeting, it's a it's a, a review, it's a, a demo, whatever it is it, 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 in your domain, it's, it's always important to keep reminding people like why we're doing this and what success is and the effect we wanted to have on people. And then let's go and talk about how we're getting on, getting there. And is there, because that's where people actually come up with more, even more novel ways to create outcomes when constraints are tough, because they think of simpler, often more elegant solutions um, than sticking to a plan that was devised months ago with limited information and real context, right? And um, yeah, that's where, honestly where I've seen probably some of the greatest innovations is teams have just taken a moment and said, actually, you know what, based on what we know now, the best way to create that experience where people feel like there's space, there's openness and, and air is not to put a brick wall over there. It's actually to put a window, you mm -hmm. know, and, and that's sort of the where the innovation happens. If you can be flexible like that in your design and choices and um Certainly, again, like I said, with products I've built from a technology point of view, that's actually where been most of the magic has happened. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, t I totally agree. And actually, if, if you were to flip that in terms of sustainability and sustainable buildings, net zero buildings um, or assets in general, actually, I think often or too often we get focused or fixated on the outcome being a net zero building or a sustainable building rather than, uh, the output, sorry, being that rather than the outcome being um, that we're going to build a great building or a great asset that serves the, the people that are using it um, to the best of what it's doing. 
it is it is also sustainable you know and that it's almost like an outcome of um i think we lose that we lose that mindset sometimes just to uh, just to flip it um slightly this this series is all about not fearing the future and i think we've talked a lot about um you know some (laughs) some processes and systems and and you know unpicked a few kind of difficulties within the construction industry and and the software industry and and how those sort of map together but i wondered whether we should probably end on some some forms of positivity and and looking at you know what what is there out there in in terms of what's your vision of this this future you know the next 10 20 30 40 50 100 years what are what are the what are the things coming down the track that you know really you know are going to positively impact where we're where we're at um and help us deliver these outcomes around you know sustainability net zero that kind of thing yeah like i like um i i'm definitely like an optimist in this stage you sort of have to be to be an entrepreneur right you'd never try and sure. build anything if, if you weren't and you know and there are dangers of course with all these amazing technologies that are arriving right ai obviously is top of mind for people at the moment both the the productivity uh, uh, gains it offers but also you know the cautions around bias being baked into it based on the data we train it or you know as people get concerned about the displacement of manual labor or jobs or you know repetitive tasks you know, but, but but what I always feel um, good and confident about is we're, we're generally able to leverage these tools to create m- much better lives for many people, right? And, and yes, there is always uh, uncomfortableness and displacement when we brought electricity to factories, when we brought, you know, all, all of these aspects about massive performance and efficiency improvements about productivity gains that were offered to people if we were able to educate and give people opportunities to build on top of the base layer that these automations if you will create and for me that's what i'm like really excited by is that we can keep pushing up like humans to work on higher order problems and let machines like focus on the crunching the computation the Right. And and I think people often sometimes forget that it's not man versus or human versus machine or machines going to kill human or it's a, it's an and. Right. And the whole reason we build these tools is that they can do things better than us, whether it's computation of large data sets or numbers. But it's still the human creativity that feeds the input to whatever is the output of the machine. And I think that's something to always remember and makes me get um, very positive about potentially the way we'll be able to, you know, solve illnesses by being able to compute thousands of sort of, um, you know, medical history records and genes and optimize health for personalized digital health. Currently, health is primarily in medicine is optimized mainly just around men, has very little input on, on female data about how medicines are designed and Mm. imagine a world where you're able to sort of you know take a sample and share your biometrics and you could get a a custom made you know dosage of something to help you uh, regulate your your system better like that that's amazing that that opportunity Mm. and it's it's not that far away from us but again there's loads of risks and nervousness around suddenly (laughs) if everyone's giving their health data away to these scary pharmaceutical companies like what are they gonna are they gonna 
mm-hmm. release another virus into the world and we're watching Hollywood stuff again, right? So, it, uh, you know, all of these things are important to be aware of and manage on the trade-offs, the pros and cons. But generally, I feel like the trajectory always brings us to a better place. You know, that uh, people live longer, uh, they're healthier, they're wealthier, they have better quality of life. That's great. Still, it's not not enough of the population are in that space, mm. but it's getting better, you know. And um, I think one great book that reminds me of that is Angels of Our Better Selves by Steve Pinkner, I think is a great book in that space. And, you know, I think it's easy when you read the headlines to think doom and gloom and the world's over and the robots are going to kill us. But if you actually look at the data, overall, the world is getting better. You know, um, there's less poverty. There's less malnutrition. There's better health outcomes for people. Their education rate is growing, you know, and um, long way to go. But, you know, at least at least we're trending up rather than down. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I think, um, you know, sometimes you get bogged down in, with, with a lot of the, you know, the current crises without looking back at, you know, what we've achieved over over you know, the, the hundreds of years. So they, yeah, I totally agree that, that there is a, a trajectory up, even if there's sort of a few bumps on the, on the way. Barry, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you so much for, for agreeing to join us today. Uh, I was wondering if you, we could finish on maybe your one, you know, key lesson or key earn, earn learning point that you'd want our listeners to sort of take away and, and, and mull over as, as they've listened to this. Yeah. Like I, you know, I always, one piece of advice that's always really resonated with me was actually from um, a sort of uncle or cousin of mine, you know, who was an entrepreneur. And, you know, at the time I had tried to launch a, launch a business and it didn't work out or it was, it was, a, it was, it was a failure, you know, and I was like sort of languishing in that. And one of the things he said to me um, was to remind me that, you know, um, you just don't have one shot in life. You know, there's not just like one moment one serendipitous, you know, point where it all works out or it doesn't, you actually have many shots. And really a lot of, uh, to your point earlier as well, like a lot of the things we attempt, some will work out, some won't. It's about dusting yourself down. And then how do you take that and like reload for the next attempt, you know? And I think that's a great reminder for me that constantly I almost go back to whenever I try something and it doesn't work as as I hoped. Sometimes it might work out as I expect, but it's not what I wanted. <laughs> but it's um, you know, like I think that's a really important part of what we're dealing with with complexity, with un- unknown exact like guaranteed outcomes. It you you've just got to keep trying and you know, if you can keep up the attempts, uh, you you're going to get the breakthrough eventually. So, yeah, that would be my tip for everyone. Amazing. Thank you very much for the conversation, Barry. Uh, Until next time, thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.